Singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by simply making a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions, and today the woman with the answers will be PJ Manny. PJ is uh, a number of things, but most recently she's the uh, science fiction writer of a fantastic new novel titled Revolution. So hi PJ, I'm happy to have you on my show. Hi there, Nicola. It's great to be here. As you saw, uh, I had a little bit of a trouble introducing you because you've done quite a few interesting things. So how about you do that hard work for us, for our benefit? How about you <laughs> tell us who you are and what you do? Oh, I am many things. Uh, from wife, mother, PTA uh, board member, uh, education activist, that's one part of my life. But the other part of my life uh, has also been... Uh, movie executive, television writer. Uh, then I moved into the futurist community, partially to do research for revolution, uh, became a board member and then chair of what was the World's, World Transhumanist Association, which I rebranded into Humanity Plus, and uh, have never left that community. Uh, they, they dragged me in, and here I am. <laughs> Fantastic. So let me just uh, highlight a, a couple of uh, uh, features of your biography. What is PTA, just for those of us who may not be familiar? It's the Parent Teacher Association. Uh, it's a national organization. Each state has one as well. Uh, and every public school participates to bring the best uh, education and extracurricular possibilities to their children. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So education is important to you. Very. Excellent. And then uh, what are some of the sort of previous film projects that you have uh, worked on and been associated with? As an executive, I worked on projects like Universal Soldier, Hook, It Could Happen to You. As a television writer, I wrote scripts for Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, Xena Warrior Princess. Uh, I also wrote or was uh, in a producerial capacity for about a dozen pilot scripts sold to studios, networks, cable companies, etc. Wow, it only occurs to me right now that, you know, my kind of failed negotiations with uh, a couple of TV networks a few months ago, uh, <laughs> I should have probably called you and asked for your advice. I'm always here. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you need, Nick. <laughs> All right. Uh, and by the way, I should uh, share with our audience that the first time I had the pleasure of meeting you uh, was at the GF 2045 conference where I had the best of time uh, sort of spending time with you, James Hughes, John, George Dvorsky, uh, and Katerina Lam. So uh, I have very fond memories of that, that outing in New York. Uh, but anyway, let's let's jump into the substance a little bit here and let me ask you this so if you were to narrow your biography to a couple of words would you say that you're a storyteller yes or would you say that you're a futurist and if storyteller storyteller because the traditional association with storytellers is that it's retrospective it's something that's happened in the past and you're just retelling it Whereas a futurist kind of does the exact opposite, doesn't, doesn't she? 
she looks into the future and then reverse engineers and goes back into the present to tell us about that future. Or is it the case? Well, but you're ignoring the entire genre of science fiction. Science fiction is exactly that. In fact, what most of science fiction tends to be, in my opinion, is you're looking to the future, but ironically, you're commenting on the present because we can't help but be stewing in our in our present. Um, and it can be something as obvious as Star Trek, where they're telling the Vietnam War parables through something 500 years in the future. Um, or it, there, there are countless examples of where we're actually using our present, trying to grapple with, with the issues that we have, but putting it into a future context so that we have a little distance. People lacking that distance, that's where the difficulty comes in. So if I'm to ask you to define science fiction for us a little more explicitly, you touched a little bit on it. What is science fiction? Because to be honest with you, I've interviewed a bunch of science fiction writers and I'm always amazed about the variety of definitions that I get. So for example, Werner Vinge said it, it was his way of making sense of the universe. Uh, Charlie Strauss said it was about exploring the human condition or what he said was coming up with plausible lies about how human behavior might work under some imaginary conditions. Um, uh, Cory Doctorow said science fiction is terrible about predicting uh, the future and it's more about the present. So what's your own definition? I'm with Cory on that one. Uh, however, I also think really science fiction... <laughs> I may be a little more analytical than than those guys because they're very much putting their own work within the context of what they believe science fiction is. Uh, science fiction to me is simply telling a story using future technology, society, um, economics, etc., and putting it putting the story within that context. It's really simple. It's about the future and. It generally implies technological advances that we don't have yet. Um, the interesting thing to me about science fiction is you can have enormous variety because you're dealing also with different time frames. I write very near-term science fiction, so I'm very interested in what are the immediate issues at hand that we're going to be dealing with in the near future, uh, whereas guys like... David Brin or um, Charlie, et cetera, are putting things further out into the future uh, where they're given in many ways a lot more leeway and they can have a lot of fun that way. Um, but for me, it's much more about what are the immediate issues we're going to have to start dealing with because technology is changing things very rapidly and we're, and we're having a variety of acceptances or uptakes. We're having a lot of conflict based on technology. Uh, it's no, you're not imagining things if you don't think that a lot of the fundamentalism around the world isn't actually a reaction to technology. It is future shock um, because it upsets people's beliefs and paradigms, et cetera. And going back to the presence, uh, to, to the present, Where's that sort of commentary part, or is there a commentary part of a story wrapped in a plot about the future and yet somehow underpinned and comment, 
uh, uh, commenting on the present. Just like you gave the example of Star Trek wrapping up, you know, comments about the Vietnam debacle, the Vietnam War debacle, and, and wrapping it up in a story 500 years from now. I'm sorry, you're going to have to repeat that question because I think you just answered your own question. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm trying to get at here is your take on, on that sort of uh, social commentary, if you will, because as Corey said, science fiction is about the present. It's not about the future. Um, so tell us about your own process. What are the underpinning sort of desires for you to perhaps make some kind of a political commentary about the, the days of today that you see as important and that you see as potentially unfolding into that future that you're describing for us? For me, I find the political polarization that is happening right now not just in our country, but around the world, indicative of both a version of future shock, but also a version of socioeconomic, a stage we're in socioeconomically. Um, this is a stage we've been in many times in human history, uh, and we will be in many times in the future. Uh, and it is a stage where that polarization coincides with growing uh, economic inequality. Uh, it coincides with too many people trying to fight for too few positions in an elite that is, on one hand, very powerful, on the other hand, not able to do what they think they can do. Uh, so I am definitely commenting on this period of time that I'm not giving answers necessarily, but I am playing with the notion that we're stuck in a time that's not a lot of fun. You know, we just have to be born into this period where we're riding the downward slope of empire. An empire, a single empire can... can oscillate for centuries, uh, many centuries, in fact. But right now we're in a down period. It's not the end of our empire necessarily, but it's the end of a period of our empire. And that was something I wanted to explore. Mm -hmm. So uh, just to be clear here, what, what is the empire that you're uh, referring to? Is that the US? Well, right now it's the US. My book is, this one is very U.S. centric. Um, and one, I'm, I'm a big fan of Peter Turchin and a form of historical analysis called Cleodynamics. Uh, and I really recommend that your audience take a look at all the people working in Cleodynamics right now because it's really genius. It's the closest thing to Asimov's psychohistory that exists. Um, really, truly impressive work. And it answers a great number of questions about where we are, why we're here, what are the social conditions, the economic conditions that have happened, and really what one can do about it. There are a lot of ways of ending this period in a gentle trough or a really nasty, violent trough. Um, and one would hope you'd want the gentle trough so that we can 
start climbing and the fewest number of people can be impacted. Um, so I'm interested in exploring these issues of uh, what he calls an overproduction of elites. Um, what happens when we have such social inequality that there are too many people fighting for too few positions at the very top of the greasy pole? And it creates a very vicious, almost a piranha tank of elites fighting each other, which that's ironically about the only thing that does trickle down. (laughs) What trickles down is the ideology that the elites want to use so that their side wins. And that's, again, fascinating to me. You know, how do the elites convince the people to follow them. So what then is your goal? What do you want to accomplish by uh, writing a science fiction novel where the underpinning foundation is what you just said uh, about, you know, the polarization and elites fighting and uh, etc. And how do you kind of measure or assess your impact afterwards on such an ambitious goal? I don't know how you assess your impact. Um, all I can hope is that people have fun reading the book. And Because you're telling a fascinating story. I absolutely loved your book, I have to admit. I, like, I, was, I absolutely loved your book. So what other than that sort of immediate pleasure, or is there anything else, that, that fascination and pleasure and sort of imagination. I I want people to understand what's coming. So you're just talking about, right now we've just been talking about the sociopolitical issues. But for me, the real issue and the real heart of the book is what happens when we start hacking the brain. And that's that's what the book is about. Um, I'm interested in the neuroscience. I'm interested in the ethics. I'm interested in the philosophy of what happens when we work with the brain augmented using technology, because this is what happens with technology. We start with medical technologies as a therapy. If the therapy is successful, it ends up spreading to those who don't need it as a medical therapy, but want it as an improvement, an enhancement, and then eventually becomes ubiquitous. Um, there's no reason why at some point in the future, not necessarily the near future that I've posited, uh, but sometime in the future where we won't be hacking our brains, improving our brains to the point where we have perfect memory, uh, where we have greater abilities than we ever imagined. Um, But I'm what I like to call a techno-realist. Um, I see both the very positive and very negative aspects to a lot of this. And, I, and honestly, it's just more fun to write. Um, I'm not here to sell anybody on brain augmentation. What I'm here to do is say, here's the first guy who's doing it in very imperfect conditions. And there are issues. And there will be issues. Um, and that's something, obviously, for future scientists to work out. 
Yeah, I have to say that as a former political science student, I would say that you're not only techno-realist, but you're sort of a new realist in the sort of Kissinger kind of way, in, in a way, <laughs> which kind of blew my mind because you're so skilled at situating, postulating, and depicting the the behind the curtain machinations of 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 the political elite, the political and business elite, and and yet in such a compelling and human and easy to understand and digest way, which was very impressive to me, I have to say, and I really enjoy that. Um, but but let me ask you about some something else that I before we jump into the book itself, something else interesting that I found at the afterward uh, of the book, and that's the fact that the book was inspired by a song. So can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, there's actually a lot to tell. Um, so the song was The Boy in the Bubble by Paul Simon. And I was fascinated by the lyrics in the song where he talks about the technologies that are around us, the millionaires and the billionaires, and the effect that that has on us. and. I really thought he nailed it. I thought it was quite brilliant uh, and a beautiful observation. That was the beginning. The other part of it was I have a daughter who, her name is Hannah, uh, who is wired to process information musically. And one of the things I noticed when I met a lot of people in Silicon Valley and also hung out with friends of mine like Ben Goertzel uh, <laughs> is that many of these people are actually wired to cognate musically um you know the the cliche is that math and music is you know so linked in the brain but she definitely processes the world through music and you can hear her all day long singing humming playing her guitar noodling on her piano uh Ben actually gave me great advice where he put her desk and her keyboard at 90 degree angles in a, in a little wheelie chair and she just flips back and forth between the music and the work. And yeah, it's brilliant. Um, thanks, Ben. Uh, uh, but what I discovered is she really does problem solve with it. And I wanted to have fun with that. So in the original version of the book, there were music lyrics. Unfortunately, uh, while on one hand, I legally had fair use rights to them, on the other hand, uh, my publishers felt very nervous about that. So the, the lyrics had to be excised from the book. Um, something else I'd always wanted to do with the book was have the music actually embedded in the ebook. The technology doesn't really exist right now, uh, but that's not to say that Amazon isn't actually thinking about how to create a more multimedia book that can be read like that, not just on a fire, but on all the other formats that they have. Um, so I really urge anyone who likes music to look at the uh, afterword about the music, create the playlist of the music, because there's lots of Easter eggs in that music that relate to how the protagonist problem solves his way through the drama that ensues. Uh, and it was a wonderful feedback loop in terms of writing and accessing the music. But I was able to both research songs that inspired the story, and then the story 
would inspire my search for other songs. So it's this fantastic feedback loop of creativity, et cetera. And I have an inkling now of what my daughter is like. <laughs> um, so that will continue in the sequels. Um, and hopefully someday we'll have the technology where you'll be able to just, you know, press on your little, you know, on your little Kindle and be able to access the music and really get more insight into how the protagonist has problem solved. Yeah, I have to admit as part of my preparation, I actually went through the music list, probably about a third of it. Um, and and uh, I'm also a big, by the way, fan of the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> Even though personally and musically I am like totally disabled, uh, I cannot play a single note or sing a single note or even hum a single note. Uh, and my wife comes from a very sort of a musical and artistic family. I, I am totally the opposite myself, but I do have a high appreciation and I absolutely love music myself. Uh, so I, I, found, I found that uh, fascinating, but I was also thinking how different people see different things from art and take away different things. Yes. Uh, because, of course, when I listened to Paul Simon's song that inspired you, I didn't quite get that vibe. And I actually forced myself to go through about 15 maybe of your songs uh, to see how far I can get to where you were, perhaps. And I cannot say that it had, the, it had an effect on me, but maybe not the same. And then, because I've already read your book, I found that the most relevant music that I could think of at that moment for me was pretty much playing Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath. <laughs> so, so for the last, for the last uh, maybe 20 minutes before we came on the interview, I was listening to, to Ozzy. So <laughs> to me, that was kind of the connection. Um, but uh, let's, let's actually talk about your book. So what is revolution about? And tell us a little bit about the funky spelling, too, perhaps. Uh, well, I will give complete and total credit for the title to my great editor, uh, Jason Kirk, at 47 North. Um, I had a title which originally was very much of a different genre. And he came up with that title, and then I thought it was genius and used the format for the subsequent titles for the sequels. Um, but... The book is about the setup of a revolution and an evolution. Um, so not only is the protagonist evolving into something beyond what we think of as human right now, but the revolution that he's putting into motion is both a technological revolution, but the seeds of what you will see in the sequels uh, is a social and uh, political revolution. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, I absolutely love the, the, the sort of the spelling of the sequels too. So that's, that's I think, brilliant. Um, but tell us a little bit more about the, the context, the plot, the timeline, the, the year that it all unfolds and so on. So the story takes place in a future that you could posit five, you know, about five years in the future, something that's completely relevant to today. Um, I very much wanted to create the airplane novel of the future uh, or of the 21st century because those books are a lot of fun. The 
I can tell you, you've succeeded on the fun end of things for sure. <laughs> I, I had a blast. Okay, great. Yay. Um, so I wanted something that was fun, approachable, but about some really hard topics that are considered very heady. I, I can't tell you the number of people who would say to me, I don't know, will I be able to understand your book? It's like, yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> um, so it's an, the airport novel of the 20th century about a man, think of it like the Count of Monte Cristo, a man who is used, uh, abused, left for dead. His greatest things are stolen from him and he has to go out, kick ass and get revenge. But the revenge is at a scale that is quite large. It's not just, I'm going to destroy the bad guys, but the unintended consequences of, I'm going after the most powerful people in America um, to get my revenge. Um, one of the things I'd like to bring up, which, which is kind of esoteric, but I think you'll appreciate it, um, is I'm a huge fan of Alexandre Dumas. And the Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo were like my favorite books when I was, I think, 12, 14, somewhere there. Mine too. So, so this one is The Count of Monte Cristo. The next two books are going to be part of the D'Artagnan romances. So it'll be Three Musketeers and their sequels. Um, but one of the things I have such admiration for Dumas for is he was doing with historical romances what airport novels and science fiction do in the opposite direction. So he couldn't really make comments about the present political situation he was in because France at that point, you didn't know any day you woke up, they could be Bonapartists, there could be kings. <laughs> you had no idea who was going to be running the country. And you had to play it very fast and loose with your political affiliations. But like Shakespeare, you could go back to the past and make political commentary based on past history because nobody could argue about a lot of the stuff that happened in the past. And so he made political commentary about the present using the past and the adventures of these wonderful characters he created. Um, so in essence, that's what I'm very inspired to do is to take the notions of commentary about the future. This comes back to the original question you had and spin it into this story um, where I get to play with all of the political issues we're grappling with right now and invite people to see it through a different set of eyes and to externalize it. Um, so they're not caught up in their own ideology necessarily. Yeah. And the reason why I usually insist on looking or at, at, at the very least looking, if not finding that connection with the presence is because I want to make it easier for people to answer to themselves uh, the question as to why should they care? What, is it, was it, what does it mean to them today, some story about the future that's years from now? Well, and the thing about this is it's near future. You got to care because you're going to be here and you're going to be dealing with this. So we already have, the, the thing that's crucial to understand is all the technology I'm mentioning is stuff that's being researched right now. I made none of this up. If you read the acknowledgments, you will actually see reference to the real scientists, real research projects 
because I don't want anyone to think that this is pie in the sky. There really is a prosthetic hippocampus being developed by Ted Berger at USC. Um, by the way, I'm like his biggest fan. When I met him, I met him at Global 2045. Um, and I just went all fangirl on him. It was hysterical. Um, there really is a nanowire endovascular system being researched at NYU. Um, nanomedicine, you know, Freitas and Merkel, their, their work is, was once completely theoretical and is now not so theoretical anymore. People are actually building these things. So all of the things that I discuss are real. This is not a future where you're going to be not around to see what happens. This is a future where you're going to wake up a few years from now and it's going to be there. So I wanted to introduce these ideas so that people start getting used to them. Um, that's the thing about technology. Technology doesn't go away just because you don't like it. Even if your country legislates against it, other countries will be developing it. Technology is the ultimate to Pandora's box, but it can be used for good. It can be used for evil. Evil. It is completely morally neutral. And really, it's up to us as citizens, wherever we are, to make sure that's being used in the right way. Yeah, this is why I, I always uh, try and bring in the, the issue of ethics to the best of my degree, because uh, it's not what we have to work with, is how we work with it. Those are the moral choices and decisions that we make. Uh, but going back to what's coming and what's possible, let me share with you something funny, uh, which I thought worked chronologically in a very interesting way. So I'm also, I was also like you, impressed by Theodore Berger's uh, work on uh, uh, brain implants. Uh, and, and I'm actually uh, hoping to get him for an interview. But on uh, Monday next week, I'm interviewing two other people. Uh, Dr. Ronald uh, Sicurel from Swiss Switzerland and Dr. Miguel Nicolelis. Um, who uh, not long ago made uh, headlines about the first brain-to-brain -brain communication. Right. And they're of the opposite opinion. So they wrote this book called The Relativistic Brain, how it works and why it cannot be simulated by a Turing machine. And so I, I found this very, very kind of interesting because I'm interviewing you today then I'm interviewing them, which are kind of the counterpoint of view, how is, it's, not, it's not possible in their opinion. And then I'm interviewing uh, Ramez Naam on his uh, third uh, uh, right. book of his series. So uh, this way, hopefully, we're giving my audience the, the full picture and a variety of opinion and, uh, opinions and possibilities. Now, uh, going back to your book, though, uh, let me share a tiny spoiler with my audience here, and that's the fact that one of the funniest thing at the very beginnings at the very beginning of the book is that you actually kill Anders Sandberg. I mean, with how, his permission. How could you? How could you do that? He's such a likable guy. I love him. I've interviewed him twice, and you kill him like in the very beginning of the book. What did he do to deserve such a fate? It made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it made me laugh too, by the way. But I mean, the poor fellow. It's a very inside joke. Um, you know, the vast majority of people, even the vast majority of people who tune into you may not get it. So it was just, 
I needed a good a good name that was that was European and wasn't English and etc. And Anders just jumped out at me. He was the perfect uh, sacrificial lamb <laughs> for an insider <laughs> joke. <laughs> okay, uh, I have to say I really laughed at it, so I thought it worked. Uh, now to another issue. Um, a major role in your plot and in your book uh, is played by an organization called the Phoenix Club. Why did you decide? Why did you decide to use that as a tool to kind of tell your story? Because I think, willingly or unwillingly, you're opening up yourself to the potential criticism that it's kind of very conspiracy theory-like. Uh, of an approach which may turn off some people straight away from the get-go? Well, two reasons. There really are, in the United States, <laughs> organizations that are, I'm not going to say just like the Phoenix Club, they're not you know, committing murders and things like that. But there really are organizations of elites that meet and discuss things prematurely to it ever coming into the policy flow of the U.S. Yeah. Um, the Phoenix Club, one of many groups, for instance, that the Phoenix Club was modeled after uh, is a group called uh, the Bohemian Club, which is a California organization. Um, but it has many members who are not Californians. And in fact, it's had every president of the United States that's a Republican uh, since, I think, almost since its inception. Uh, and it's been a place where in their summer retreats, it's been the first place where they've discussed all kinds of things uh, before they ever hit white papers at a government level. Um, so in a very relaxed setting with some of those powerful people in America, things are discussed out of the reach of, of um, everyone else. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's documented, proven. There have been uh, academic papers on, you know, the effect of, you know, how did the, how did the, the how did this club or these discussions influence the Vietnam War, the et cetera. So, I am not a conspiracy theorist myself. Um, I think part of my realist moniker is that I don't dismiss the things that actually do exist, and one has to understand that. At a certain level of society, they do talk to each other, and things are decided in quote unquote back rooms. But it's not a conspiracy, you know, it's, it just is. So I use the club because it was fun, because I'm aware of a number of secret societies. Uh, look, you know, I, I make a joke that they're like the Masons on acid. I collect Masonic memorabilia and Shriners memorabilia. Uh, I've been fascinated with uh, secret societies because they really do exist. Um, are the Freemasons this great conspiracy? No, not at all. But they provide a place for people to make high-level decisions in their communities outside the public sphere. And I think sometimes in some of those organizations, the higher up they go, the more powerful people they have, they forget what that actually means. Mm-hmm. Their agendas are not necessarily the people's agenda. I see, and and it kind of also uh, one one of my favorite characters of yours was uh, Josiah, 
mm. the Secretary of the State, and he was kind of a crossover between Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, and yep. and I think he was very well done. Uh, he was kind of a, to me, kind of the likable elder statesman in some ways, and yet in in other ways, like the most ruthless and evil manipulator, which both of those guys were, especially Kissinger. Uh, so, uh, can you tell us a little bit about a little bit more about how perhaps you get inspiration about the characters? Do you seek for real life sort of prototypes or protagonists before you, just like with Anders Sandberg, Sandberg perhaps? Uh, well, poor Anders, I think I made him 50. So it really, you know, it was just a good name. Uh, <laughs> Anders, that's not really you. Um, honestly, I, almost all the characters are composites. Um, and very good that you picked up on the Kiss, Kissinger and Brzezinski and, you know, their, that whole real politic thing exactly. was something that I was very conscious of um, because it exists. The, that this is real. This is um, while we're having fun with this story. I'm still trying to show how people actually behave at these levels, and you know, you hang out with Kissinger, and he's he's a raconteur. He can be quite charming. Yeah, he was quite a ladies' man at his day. Oh his yeah, day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, don't really understand it, but okay. <laughs> but you know, these are very complex people. And I, I don't want to have just mustache twirling bad guys. Um, there, there are a bunch of bad guys in the book who, you know, are other people have told me are their favorite characters. I'm like, okay, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. Um, but I think that's, that's actually a good thing. Um, yeah, I think so. And I actually think one of the strengths of your uh, sort of story is the fact that you have a diversity of characters who, that are not just clear, black and white or, or good and bad, but some of them are kind of striding the, the moral ambiguity line back and forth, uh, as it were. Some of them are outright evil, like uh, Bruce Lobo, for example. Uh, but, you know, others are likable, like Josiah. Uh, and and you have a good character, which is Peter. Eventually becomes uh, becomes uh, uh, Tom. Tom, yeah. And, and and he kind of is the good character, but yet in some moments you kind of start to be fearful of of, of what he's becoming uh, and the direction he's going in. So so I I found that to be very skillfully done. And and when you throw in the realpolitik angle of things, it was really impressive. So. Uh, and kind of intellectually stimulating and a little bit scary, I have to admit. <laughs> but tell me a little bit more about the the, the science. Uh, why did you decide to approach it the way you did with sort of a biotech, nanobots, uh, brain surgery, etc.? Uh, Is that the likely way you think that potentially this could unfold? Or is it just a literally tool for you to tell a story? Well, at the beginning, I thought, well, this was some amazing research. You have to understand, this took me a while to write. Um, there's some very cool 
new research that's developed that if I had to write the book over again, I would probably change some things out. Uh, however, having said that, um, I wanted to play with what the different effects of different technologies might be and what their possible uses could be. Um, and these were the ones that at the time when I was originally sketching out the story were available to study. Uh, so do I think this is the, the absolute future? Is this the road plan to improve brains? I have no idea. Uh, I would never hazard that guess, but I do know since this is research that is ongoing, um, that it was, it was there to play with. Yeah. And my take on things like that generally is, you know what? I am always willing to give the benefit of the doubt because, uh, I myself cannot predict the future. And to me, those are just the details. The more important stuff is, regardless of how we got there, is what happens next. What are the implications? What are exactly. the big issues? What, what, exactly. what are the things we should be fearful about? What are the things we should try and create and, and sort of incentivize, as it were, rather than the details of how we got there? So I, I'm always willing to give the benefit of the doubt. And by the way, that is very much still, a, in my view, one of the potential paths of getting there. Uh, so what was the biggest, most surprising lesson that you learned after writing such a book? What's the thing that you totally did not expect to find out or learn or discover? That it would take so long. <laughs> How? How long did it take? You don't want to know. I started the initial research for this book back in 2006, I want to say. Uh, when I first started noodling what this story would be about, um, I got involved with chat rooms, with the Extropy Institute, with the World Transhumanist Association, now Humanity Plus, uh, and start introducing myself within the community so I could find out as much as I could. Um, and it was amazing, you know, how, how long it took me to write this particular one. Uh, but then again, I was also raising two small children and an education activist and uh, working on my husband with, you know, screenplay projects and other stuff. So uh, in one sense, I have myself to blame. <laughs> But uh, in another sense, it, uh, I really taught myself how to write prose uh, on this project. Um, so from a practical standpoint, that was the biggest takeaway I had. Yeah, and I would have to say sometimes you have to, you know, be patient and let ideas and, and skills ripen and mature. Because that's one of the things that, that I was really impressed by. Because as far as I know, it's your first book. And, and I was amazed by how compelling the characters were because I, I do read a lot of books that I don't end up doing any interviews on. Uh, and, and one of the most common mistakes for first-time writers is that they tend to make a little less complex, more shallow, less compelling uh, emotionally and otherwise type of characters and, and stories. Yet, yet you had sort of the sophistication of a very kind of complex yet an intricate yet understandable plot uh, given life by very compelling characters emotionally and otherwise, Re really human characters one can associate with or, or understand how they tick. 
And, and I, I thought that was very, very impressive. Um, so your biggest surprise was how long it took. <laughs> yeah. Um, and how, and also how much I had to learn. Um, I was very lucky to have uh, my dear friend, Joe Quirk, as one of my readers and story editors. Uh, and he was fantastic with notes and whipping me into shape and saying, you know better than this. You know? <laughs> um, and I had many friends who were very helpful as readers, uh, giving me notes, et cetera. But ultimately, it's just the time. And, and perhaps one of the, one of the signs of, of the progress that you've made in that time uh, was that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your first working title was The Country's Club. Yes. Right. And, and I can see how that could be the title of your novel, but I think what you ended up with is like miles better. Uh, and, I agree. And this is, this is the process of, 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 of re revision and improvement and progress, whether it's personal progress that we make individually or collectively as a society. Exactly. And speaking of that, Something else that uh, another young, very successful science fiction writer uh, said uh, during our interview, Han Rayanimi, he said that creativity requires frustration and suffering. So I thought, <laughs> I thought you might want to say a little about that. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, I, I wish it didn't, um, but uh, since I am of a... Buddhist proclivity and life is suffering. Um, there's no reason why creativity is somehow exempt from that. Uh, I can't tell you how tortured it, the process can be. Um, because especially just when you think, oh, I've nailed it. I've done it. Oh, wow. And then you hand it to someone who you trust and they say, ooh, I don't know. <laughs> why'd you do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, you're right. Um, so I guess out of all of my work in film and television, I'm really attuned to the audience. Um, and I believe in the audience. Do I believe in the entire audience? No. Uh, there are people who no matter what you could write yeah. Ulysses yeah. and they would say, ah, crap. Um, so at one point you have to take things with a grain of salt, but I'm a big believer in if you have uh, a percentage of people who say, yeah, this is an issue, you have to listen to them um, because they're your audience. You know, you have to respect the audience above all. Uh, and that's very hard for a lot of creative people. Um, and again, I was very lucky to have been on both sides of the desk as both an executive and a writer uh, and have to give and take notes that I respect that process tremendously. Yeah, and I have to admit that's one of the reasons why, because people always tell me, why haven't you written a book yet? You have a material for a number of them. And I was like, well, so the two main reasons are you know, the three are, one is obviously fear, but, but the other ones are the fact that I don't quite feel it's, it's, it's cooked enough. I don't feel it's ripened and matured enough. Uh, and the third is that I'm not quite prepared for that kind of level of pain and suffering, maybe. 
Yeah, there's definitely, you know, I, I can tell you there are times where I would get notes back and I would rail at the invisible heavens and, uh, you know, and then I would calm down and, and get to it. <laughs> that's, that's the way, that's the only way to go, I think. Uh, but let me, let me kind of see if I can connect it a little bit with, with, with the future of humanity here. Some places of your book are quite dark and quite scary. And that that kind of has to do a lot with the sort of this Bigniff Brzezinski slash Kissinger realpolitik kind of point of view, which is very well represented in your book. Uh, are you optimistic for the future of humanity, given the fact that you're so well versed into the sort of the dark side, if you will? <laughs> um. I am, well, again, I don't see myself as an optimist or a pessimist. I see it as just it is. We will be, what we will be as humanity is anyone's guess. I do believe that most people have the best interests of both themselves and others it's what happens with the people who don't. And in history, there is an extraordinary ability for humanity to create beyond checks and balances as we think we know them in uh, the micro-political sphere. There are grand historical checks and balances that happen. And when you discover that the people who you've given power to, to govern you, don't have your best interests at heart, stuff happens. Whether it's revolution or simply uh, socio-political readjustments, etc. So power can be taken away. Power changes. Uh, I feel that we will change. Humanity will change. If you believe that Australopithecus africanus was the first human, then we've changed already. And we're not the last stop in what it means to be human. So I do believe things are going to happen. Whether we would recognize them at this point in time as a positive change, really, it might not matter. As long as the people experiencing it themselves believe it was a positive outcome. Because we have a limited ability to understand what the future actually implies. We can come up with scenarios as to what the future means. But the people living in the future, they're the ones who really are dealing with it. Um, and we might be very surprised by their opinions about how they're living and why they're living. Mm -hmm. When you said what will happen will happen, it reminded me to Kesara Sara, which is, of course, one of the songs in, <laughs> in that playlist. Uh, but uh, a little bit more serious, but what if we are not uh, the first or, or we are somewhere in that process of being human, you said, but what if we are actually the last ones? What if we are like the dinosaurs, the very last ones before the big meteor hits? Uh, and some people say that meteor may be in the form of an AI, for example. 
right? And and and, and then there is not necessarily a direct continuity between us and the AI. There are some scenarios which may include that, but others which do not, at least directly. Well, if you're talking about that, then you really are talking about the singularity. Exactly. So, right. so that's my way of kind of... Right. And, and I will be, if I can just back this up for a second sure. and we'll go back to your question. Um, I very consciously chose not to deal with the singularity. Um, I decided this very early on in the process because as much as I respect people who write about the singularity, I find that as a vehicle to tell a story to the masses, it is possibly the worst vehicle imaginable because once the singularity happens, nobody cares. The only people who care are those who thrive on ideas. Now, as you've noticed, my book is very much about characters. Most people read, watch movies or television because of characters, because that's how we create empathy, by stepping into the shoes of another person and experiencing life through, those, through their eyes. The great singularity novels are not necessarily about the characters. They're about the ideas. Because once you get to the singularity and beyond, character ceases to matter. And that's a very limiting audience, my personal opinion. Some of my favorite science fiction novels of all time are, are about the singularity. Accelerando is, it's genius. Absolutely. But I can't give Accelerando to my mother to read, to understand what the future is about, because she would not be able to relate. So I avoided the singularity because I wanted to keep the human characters front and center or what we define as human because that will change. But I wanted to keep them characters, not concepts. Let me give you a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt and you tell me if that's a little bit of a criticism to what you just said. Okay. She said this, Eleanor Roosevelt, that is, said this, great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events. Small minds discuss people. I love that quote, by the way. Um, Can we say the same about great books or not? Why not? Well, no. Okay, because I actually think you're talking about different contexts. Great minds do discuss ideas, but we only understand stories through characters, really understand them. And that's how we're wired. You know, it's a great quote but it doesn't actually understand the neuropsychology of empathy. And the irony is that Eleanor Roosevelt had the greatest empathy of any person in the world, but I think what she's really talking about is who she'd rather have as a dinner guest. <laughs> she'd rather have Einstein yes. than a gossip. But he was also a great character to have on oh, the yes, table. Oh, yes, he was a great character. <laughs> um, I understand, a hell of a lot of fun. Um, but... So I think while a fabulous quote, I really do believe it has more to do with who she would like to be either at a dinner party with or in the trenches with coming up with how to solve great problems. I'm telling a story mm -hmm. and you can't tell a story to the largest number of people possible without dealing directly with character. Um, and it's the reason why, and I've said this and I'll say it again, 
it's why tragically to me so much science fiction is a literary ghetto because it deals so much in ideas that people can't relate to it and i want to bring those ideas wrapped in the shell of characters so it's um a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down <laughs> to quote mary poppins <laughs> Sure, and, and I have to back you up on this a little because that, that's uh, I agree with you uh, entirely, and, and I think that's why your book is compelling because you have those compelling characters, um, and and they give life to your story, and then they act as the hook, which forces people to confront those ideas. Uh, so so I, I absolutely agree with you. I just uh, wanted to have a kind of a good way of, of, of getting your opinion out, if, if, if possible. But um, let me ask you about something else. I, I noticed that not only did you kind of skipped over the singularity potentiality entirely, but nowhere in the book that I remember do you ever use neither transhumanism nor H+. And, and I, I thought that's kind of interesting. Tell us a little about that. Uh, well... It felt like an advertisement on one hand. Well, first of all, again, I've gone on the record for this. I'm not a big fan of the word transhumanism. I, you know, this is not a surprise to any of my dear friends like Natasha Vita Moore or Max Moore or, you know, James Hughes or anything like that. Um, I've always felt the word was misinterpreted by people. And and easily misconstrued. And also to me, to say something is you're interested in transhumanism always reeked a little of a bunch of guys running down the platform of the train of radical evolution and some could jump on and some couldn't and that was just what was going to happen. And it seemed a very, on one hand, something that was always in the future and on the other hand, something that was exclusionary. My feeling about transhumanism is that we've always been transhuman. We've been transhuman since Australopithecus. Um, there's always a line in the sand in front of us that we continually cross through technology that makes us more than the human we were before. Um, to say that that thing out there in the future is what is the step, the line we cross to make us transhuman is, is ridiculous. So, I don't like the word transhuman. I'm not going to use it. Why not H plus then? Well, and the irony is H plus is something that I actually popularized. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> That's exactly my point, or part of it anyway. It sounded, a, it felt a little uh, self-promoting. You had a little guilt. Um, not even <laughs> no, not guilt. Uh, not guilt at all. Actually, I'm thrilled that people Good. use H plus and and uh, and humanity plus. Um, more that I didn't want the story to hang on something so specific. H plus is just uh, is a label. I'm not a big fan of labels, um, and it's meaningless because again, we've always been utilizing technology to be more than we are, and. Since the beginning of 
quote unquote humanity. Um, so H plus is an idea, but I didn't need to advertise it. It, it, you know, if people are interested in the notions of humanity plus they can check out the organization. They can check out the philosophies. They can read Max Moore and James Hughes and transhumanism. They can do all that. Um, but I didn't, it just, just felt wrong to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, another couple of interesting elements that I noticed in your book, and you very likely touched on it, that you're kind of sympathetic to Buddhism. So especially towards sort of after the middle and towards the end of the book, as our main protagonist gets more and more enhanced, um, there's a lot more kind of, spiritual elements perhaps perhaps buddhist elements perhaps the hammer of penrose or or quantum theory of consciousness was showing up somewhere there on the edges uh can you tell us a little bit about that why put those elements in the book because that's one thing that i for example noticed to be very different with you and someone like ramezna and a bunch of others too by the way why put that in the book? Um, <laughs> it's in a way. I think there's, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's just my perception. But there's some kind of a fear that if you end up having elements like that, then you cannot be called what's called what labeled hard science fiction writer. Well, but here's the thing: Buddhism is a brain technology. It's one of the earliest brain technologies. How do you, and its, and its goal, by the way, is one we're still working on from a technological aspect. How do you reduce suffering? That's what Buddhism's about, at its, for me, at its core. How do you reduce suffering? Suffering of yourself, suffering of others. Those attachments, simple. <laughs> right, but... It's a technology, whether it's using meditation, which is a technology, whether it's forms of right action. These are all elements that we've been grappling on how to make ourselves happy since we discovered we were unhappy. Any brain technology is going to have to come to grips with life is suffering. And whether it's David Pierce's, you know, transhumanist hedonism (laughs) um, or other people like him, we're all grappling with how do we make ourselves ourselves and everyone else happier. in a sense, Buddhism is the first great transhuman brain technology. And it just seemed natural to me. It didn't, and maybe because I'm steeped in it, but it seemed to me that many of the realizations, I was going to say many of the realizations that one comes to in a Buddhist practice are things that if one's brain was enhanced, one would come to as well. It just seemed natural to me. 
I would I would hope so, even though to be fair, that what probably other religions would make the same claim. But but my point here, perhaps not well made, was that you even go further beyond that. I mean, Ramez Naam does mention a lot of meditation and Buddhism in his own trilogy, but I think you go into issues such as uh, quantum consciousness, uh, such as perhaps ESP uh, and things like that, which go even further than that. That's less about Buddhism, um, which, by the way, I don't believe, for me, is not a religion per se. Uh, one could call it a spiritual practice. It's really more philosophy. I'm, I'm going to go as Buddhism as philosophy. I agree with you entirely. That's why I, I kind of gravitate towards it myself, but others would disagree. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, I went in that direction because... I believe that intelligence is pattern recognition and the greater ability to recognize patterns means the greater ability to see reality that other people might not see. And for me, it's all about context. We can live in our moment day-to-day -day context, just seeing what's in front of us, or we can get the 30,000 foot view. I'm a big believer in trying to gain the 30,000-foot view. The ability to recognize patterns at a macro scale is something that I would hope increased intelligence would afford us. I also believe that, unlike many in my community, although Ben Goetzel agrees with me, that there are things, be it ESP, whatever label, para psychology label you want to stick on it. There are people who have some remarkable abilities. Um, they aren't on call. They won't win the uh, James Randi award. Uh, <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't order this stuff up, uh, you know, off a menu. But I do believe a lot of people's intuition, what we call intuition, is actually a subconscious form of pattern recognition that a lot of the things we, that we label parapsychology are actually completely explainable if we only knew the greater context. And so I wanted to play with the idea that increased intelligence actually could give you what appears to be these quantum consciousness or parapsychology abilities because you are seeing more reality. Our reality is so defined by our very flawed perception systems and our very flawed brain processing that if you could improve both sides of that process, we would know a lot more, see a lot more, realize a lot more. Um, and we might take for granted then information that's coming to us that we didn't realize previously. Mm -hmm. That very much reminds me again to Hannah Ryanimi's uh, uh, sort of uh, recent work, uh, unpublished yet, but he said he's working um, in kind of related or relevant area, uh, or exploring it at least, uh, which I find interesting, by the way. Uh, but you said that you are also trying to see reality that other people may not see. So I'm trying to is it 
fair to connect that that with your sort of search or promotion of empathy? Is that the part of reality that we are often missing? That's just one part of reality that many people are missing. Um, that feeling that we can inhabit the lives of other people. Um, you know, we're very, very good at turning off our ability to relate to people um, for a whole host of reasons. Fear usually being the primary reason. Um, so that ability, again, with increased brain capacity, increased intelligence, but also, in essence, being forced to be open all the time, which the character experiences. Um, that ability to empathize so greatly, as in the story, is both a positive and a negative. Um, it's a positive because he can understand. It's a negative because you don't always want to feel. There are people who are hyper hyper empathetic who can actually real people right now who if you pinch your arm will feel pain in the arm you pinched that's how highly attuned their mirror neurons are um that's a very tough life to live i think actually connected to the pain and suffering of writing i think that's very much part of it <laughs> uh, uh yeah and i'm serious because and i think you've done a, the reason why you've done a great job even with uh you know, sort of highly negative characters such as Josiah is because of that empathy, because of that ability to look beyond beyond the, you know, the, the, the negative action or what you would call condemnable actions perhaps and, and sort of look for the human, look for the common, look for, for something that you like even and associate with and, and that's why he has a number of likable traits as i said a sort of the elder statesman uh somewhere from down south i think was he from alabama or where, uh where yes yes yeah so i mean i think that's 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 empathy is the reason why you've been able to create those uh amazing characters and, and why writing contains so much pain and suffering I think <laughs> because you have to be able to contain the contradictory personalities character traits emotional charges uh, and motivations all at once or, or alternating at least and 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 that takes a toll so yeah um, but it's also fun I have to you know don't 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 sell writing as just pain and suffering it's also a lot of fun. It, honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to writing the sequels because I want to know what happens to them. Yeah, I, I now, now, now I want to know too. Now I want to know too. And, and, and I agree with you. And, and it's particularly much more fun, especially for us who just get it ready to go, as it were. Um, so let me ask you then, since you, you brought it up, what's next for PJ and when can we expect the sequels? Next for PJ is uh, Identity, which is book two. Uh, that you should probably see the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. And then Conscience will be about a year later. Um, I'm actually working in the two books relatively in tandem uh, because while I 
believe I know where one's going to end and the other's going to begin. It's, uh, I'd rather work on the storyline together for right now. Um, and doing enormous amounts of research, just uh, crazy research machine, because the next two books are going to, where this book emphasized brain technologies and, and nanotechnology, uh, the next books are going to explore robotics, AI, AGI, um, and some other technologies. So there will be a lot more singularity. Yes, I, I'm going to be dancing as fast as I can. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, um, very well. While while desperately holding back the singularity, we'll see. We'll see if I succeed. Let's see. I'm looking forward to find out. Is there any chance we would see you on a book tour then, whether here in Toronto or elsewhere? Uh, really good question. Um, probably not a traditional book tour, but I will be doing, uh, I hope, some virtual book tours. So there'll be uh, hangouts and group YouTube things, etc. cetera, uh, working that out right now with the publishers um, so yeah, there'll be definitely be opportunities to, to talk to fans. And, uh, I wanted to let, you were actually the very first person to hear this. Uh, although it, by the time this airs, it might be in the public sphere. Um, I think I've done a first, I have signed an ebook on Kindle, added it to the blockchain where the signature will now be held in perpetuity to my dear friend uh, and fellow uh, future nut, Russell Ruckin in the UK. And it is, we believe, the very first e-autograph ever put into the blockchain. Interesting. Can you tell us by any chance how that works? Because I've been actually doing some work on, on Bitcoin uh, a few months ago. And, and even though I haven't done anything in the last couple of months, I'm curious. Can you share how it works? So how it works is we basically go into the Kindle uh, program. I can add a note on my end, send that note to Russell. He uploads it to his Kindle. And the note is the autograph. So it will appear on the page that I signed it. It appears on his page. So he now owns that. I then take that same file, that same text file, and add it to the blockchain. So it's basically written from me to him. The text file is uploaded to the blockchain. And it was surprisingly simple. What, what we found extraordinary is no one else had done it yet. Um, and because the next two books are also going to be a lot about the blockchain and the future of the blockchain uh, and the implications of the blockchain. Uh, we thought that it would be a lot of fun to do something like this. Uh, so yeah, I think I've got the first author's autograph onto the blockchain. That's fantastic. How long is the text? Uh, probably about three sentences, four sentences. Three sentences. Yeah. Cause I know there's a bunch of people who have been working on sort of uh, uh, decentralized contracts uh, and things like that, utilizing Bitcoin technology, such as potentially Ethereum, and there's actually a variety of other, uh, which are, I don't know how, how far along the way, but 
uh, at any rate, what you're doing is 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 very interesting, and and congratulations. Then, so I I might as well try and edit this and publish it as soon as possible. So I, I'm the first to break the news. Maybe. <laughs> uh, so that's the uh, that should be fun, and and the nice thing about uh, utilizing also the blockchain is technically, if Russell wanted to sell the autograph. He would be able to. He could, yeah. That's yeah. what's that's what the fun part of it. Uh, and as someone who was raised in the rare book world, uh, the ideas of technologically enhanced provenance are really interesting. And the uh, the future value of PJ's autograph, digital autograph, mind you, is also very interesting. <laughs> I don't think it has any value at all, but hey, what, it could be fun. <laughs> well, perhaps maybe not too valuable right now, but after your other brilliant books come out, who knows? So you might as well make sure you do a fantastic job to have it appreciate, right? Well, it's at least fun to explore the technology. <laughs> okay, PJ. So uh, for those of our viewers who uh, have been hanging out with us for over well over an hour uh, now, What's the best place to find more about you and follow up on, on the next uh, books of the series? Uh, the best place would be both my website, which is pjmanny.com. Uh, also, uh, my Amazon page, the Amazon author's page. Um, 47 North is an imprint of Amazon, so they're very much uh, my publisher. Um, and on social media, Twitter, I'm PJ Manny. I'm, I'm very easy to find um, on any kind of uh, social media. Uh, and I'll be slaving away at the next two books. Fantastic. I wish you a little bit less uh, pain and suffering and a lot more joy and, and pleasure. Thank and fun. you. <laughs> Hopefully now that you've got kind of like the first one going, it would get easier. Um, and then... The question, the question that I always ask at the very end of my interviews is, what's the message? What's the best way to wrap this up in a way that we send our audience with something worthwhile, something, a message perhaps, uh, a lesson or, or anything that you want to impart on us? Well, I think the most important thing I have to offer uh, through my stories is that I don't want people to worry. While my stories are ironically, you know, uh, action and, and uh, action-packed and potentially, as you said, terrifying, um, I actually want people to understand that the future comes and not to be afraid of it because it's not going to mean we're not going to be human. We're still going to be human. It's just new ideas of what human is. And... Honestly, I think things are going to be okay. So maybe I am a techno-optimist. <laughs> I think that you are, definitely. And, and that kind of also makes me more optimistic too, because uh, if, 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 if given the sort of the, the grasp of, of the, the realpolitik that you have and the human nature that, that you have there and the, the kind of personalities that are attracted to those decision-making places and positions... And despite all of that, you're still optimistic. That's that's fantastic, and I I think it's a great point to 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 stop our interview at. Great. 
So, PJ, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Oh, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Yeah.